<laughs> well, if I was nervous before, oh well. <laughs> so we leave for the winter, and, and Brandon tapped me to, uh, to do the sermon this morning. I, I, I am going to, as Alistair said, depart from the Watch Your Mouth series. Um, I'm going to do something a little different. What, what I want to do this morning is lay out a logical progression so that one plus one plus one plus one equals four. We're going to climb a hill, if you will. And I want us to climb a few rocks, but when we get to the top of the hill, I want us to have a clear, unobstructed view of what God's heart is really like. I think this, this comes from, largely from, our small group, which has been going through a book for several months now, called Gentle and Lowly. It's by Dane Ortland. It's been a it's been a fantastic study. We've learned a lot of stuff. And um, mostly, it is because we don't know the scriptures. We don't know the scriptures, and we don't know God's heart. We think we do because we look at other people, and we see their hearts. But the problem is we take that and project that to God. So we're going to pray, and then um, we'll dive into it. Um, and, and like I say, I want, to, I want to do a logical progression so that, so that it's easy for you to understand and remember. So hopefully I'll accomplish that. Bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for giving me the privilege of standing before you and this congregation. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, you would give us understanding, clarity of thought, that we, would, that we would understand your scriptures in a new and, and marvelous way. Father, that we could not only understand them, but apply them to our lives. That we might know your heart, know what you're thinking when we come to you, and that we might um, recognize that and not be hesitant to come. Father, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first main point is one that we're going to build upon for the whole rest of the sermon. It's, it's very foundational, and without it, we're left in limbo, if you will. We cannot know God's heart unless he reveals it to us. You can't look out and look at other people you can't find out any other way unless God reveals his heart to us. Without God's revelation of himself, man creates a God in his own image. Some would say God is a God of love. Therefore, 
everyone will gain eternal life. Other faiths and other peoples have different concepts of who God is. When we create our own God, we devise a God of our own liking. There's no objective standard or factual basis. Even looking at the Bible, we can come up with different ideas on who God is and what he's like. Oftentimes, we pick and choose what we're willing to believe about God from the Bible. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm okay with Jesus in the New Testament, but not so good with the God of the Old Testament? And then there's a third factor which skews our our thinking of God. And that is that we have been changed by sin. Our thinking is messed up partly because we see all around us other messed up people. And we look at them and, and we think that's what God is like. We think this is normal and we project this onto God. We now expect God to respond to situations like we're accustomed to other people responding. We make the mistake thinking God is like us. He is not. These are perhaps the main reasons why there are so many ideas and views on who God is and what he's like. So how can we find out what God is really like? The only way us earthlings are ever going to know God is by God telling us who he is, and he does this in two ways. The first way is called general revelation. It's what Romans 1 and Psalm 19 talk about. It's we see the stars, the order in the universe, the sun comes up every day, we recognize a creator. We don't know his name or what he's really like. But we know that there is a God and and that there is a creator. There is another way to know God, and that's called special revelation. It's God speaking to his people through the Bible, through Old Testament prophets, and ultimately through his son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 kind of form a um, outline for what we're going to talk about today. Let me just read it to you. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. This is God talking to us through the prophets and ultimately through his son. God telling us what what he is like is the only way we will ever know. So what I would like to do with that foundation in mind is go to the Old Testament and see what God says about himself. What's his heart really like? What is he What is he like at the very core of his being? I think we're going to be a little bit surprised at what we come up with. The first first passage is Isaiah 55. You, You may recognize that. It talks about God's ways being higher 
than our ways. We kind of take that for granted. We don't, we don't have too much trouble, I don't think, believing that. Oftentimes, we use this verse, which is verses 6 through 9, to comfort people when we can't explain life in any other way than the providence of God. God's thoughts are indeed not our thoughts, and they're vastly different. But God's providence, or his permissive will, is not why Isaiah wrote this. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55, if you get a, got a Bible. should be one in the pew in front of you. And I want to look at the three verses there that surround kind of the, the, main, the main passage that I want to look at. <clears throat> Starting in verse 6. Seek the Lord, and, and before I read it, oftentimes, oftentimes we use this verse, or we use these verses, to explain something that's not explainable. To say, yeah, that's, that's God working. We don't know why he's doing that. It's, it's the way it is. We're just going to have to accept it and go on. But I want you to notice the context. What, why Isaiah wrote this. Why he says what he does. Starting in verse 6. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he's near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The first part of this passage invites us to seek, to call on God. An invitation is extended to the wicked to turn or repent. What will, what will God do to the people who come? Forgive generously. Your versions may say pardon abundantly. This is not mere acceptance but sweeping us up in his arms because he delights in forgiveness. The, one of the things we're going to notice this morning is the Old Testament uses adjectives and adverbs to kind of describe what, what God is doing. And Isaiah is no exception. Forgive generously. Pardon abundantly. That's not just wiping the slate clean, but sweeping us up in his arms. God knows we're a bit skeptical. We have never seen this. Who has this kind of compassion, this kind of mercy? Pick the most merciful, compassionate person you have ever known. The closest Mother Teresa-like person. Even they're not even close to this as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's not close. That's a long ways. This is how vastly different 
my heart is from yours. This is how way off man is from me. The contrast here is not between life's calamity and God's providence, but between man's unwillingness to forgive and God's willingness to forgive. God's willingness to forgive is beyond our comprehension. But wait, you say, I'm an image bearer. I've been made in the image of God. Shouldn't our hearts be similar? Our ruinous fall into sin has totally distorted our hearts. We have a natural bent towards reciprocity. We want to balance the scales. Whether it be payback, equanimity, or our perception of justice. I grew up, and probably you, with sayings like, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. You don't get something for nothing. And nothing in life is free. The truth is, we're more law-ish than we are willing to admit even to ourselves. We beat ourselves We beat ourselves up because of our sin. So we become reluctant to come to God for forgiveness. He must be hesitant to look back, to take us back in, we think. Not so. He forgives generously, pardons abundantly. He delights in doing that. Let me finish this passage with a quote from John Calvin from his commentary on Isaiah. He, meaning Isaiah, he draws a distinction between God's disposition and man's disposition. Men are wont to judge and measure God from themselves, for their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased. But the Lord shows that he is far from resembling men. His ways are not our ways. The second passage I want us to go to is Lamentations. We probably haven't spent a lot of time in Lamentations. Lamentations is kind of an interesting book. It's part of the poetry of the Old Testament. You, if you were here in July when I preached um, on Psalm 31, I think it was, the, we talked about Hebrew poetry. The, the thing you may remember is, we rhyme, they don't. He, Hebrew poetry, though, has structure. And structure, they use structure to point towards the things that are important. Lamentations, the book of Lamentations has five chapters. The first two And the last two, one, two, four, and five, all have 22 verses each. The reason is it's an acrostic. Each of those 22 verses starts with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? Chapter five is is the author's prayer, probably, possibly Jeremiah, but... And so it is not an acrostic, but he still keeps it to 22 verses. That's carried over in our English Bibles. 
Psalm 119 is, is very similar. It's an acrostic as well. Every eight verses in Psalm 119, longest psalm in the Bible, has, starts with a subsequent Hebrew letter in their alphabet. So you can, you can easily tell how many verses are in Psalm 119. 176, 8 times 22. In Lamentations 3, he does something just a little bit different. Every three verses start with a subsequent Hebrew letter of the alphabet. What he is doing in Lamentations is making a pyramid, and it points right to the center of the book. Lamentations 3.33. And that is the focal point of the book. Now, I want us to look at verses 31 through 33 in, in Lamentations. Um, let me read it here. <clears throat> Starting at verse 31. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Your Bibles may, may say, he does not afflict from the heart. The point here is divine justice and divine righteousness demand punishment for sin. There is no getting around that. It is, a, is an attribute of God. It's like him being eternal. Sin gets punished. We either pay for it ourselves, or Jesus pays in our place. Those two options. So God is indeed the one who inflicts the punishment. But he wants us to notice explicitly that he gets no pleasure out of punishing sin. That's not his heart. It's a part of who he is, but it's not his heart. Justice and mercy are not like a set of scales. When mercy goes up, justice goes down. Or when justice goes up, mercy goes down. Both rise and fall together. It's only when we see just how great God's justice is against the, the, the sin in the world do we recognize how great his mercy is. His heart is all about compassion and love. Terms like unfailing love and compassion, steadfast love and faithfulness. Those adjectives are there for a reason. This is where God delights. A good illustration of this is Nineveh. You re may remember Jonah and the whale. The the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and God told him, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. 
Jonah should have been thrilled, overjoyed. He hated Nineveh. The Assyrians were a very ruthless uh, people. They were enemies of Israel. Jonah hated Nineveh. He should have been thrilled to go to, to Nineveh and say, guess what? You guys are going to get destroyed in 40 days, and I'm happy about it. But that's not Jonah's response. Jonah goes the opposite way. He spends three days in the motel of the tail of the whale. I'm sure that wasn't a pleasant experience, by the way. And and then he ends up going to Nineveh. Nineveh, as we know or may remember, repents. They, They start fasting. They say, maybe the Lord will relent from the punishment that he's going to enact on our town and our people. In, in Jonah 4.2, I want to read Jonah's response. I'll start at verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I know, I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. You see, that's God's heart. Jonah is actually a good example of both Isaiah and the Lamentations passage. God does not want to afflict people. And and they repented, and so God relented on the punishment that he had. But also, Jonah does not want to forgive them. He's mad at God because God forgave Nineveh. And Jonah wants Nineveh punished. And that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. We're not willing to forgive people. God is, but we're not. That's why my ways are higher than your ways. The third passage in the Old Testament I want to look at is Exodus 33 and 34. We're going to look at just a couple of of verses there. Moses does an amazing thing. In, uh, in Exodus, <clears throat> on the heels of, of Israel having the whole golden calf incident and them erecting an idol and, and Moses interceding for, for all of Israel, Moses says to God, I want you to show me your glory. In, in verse chapter 33, verse 18, Moses responded, Then show me your glory. Show me your glorious presence. Now, when we think of God's glory, it might be like the song we sang this morning. We might expect 
lightning to come down and, and with God showing his glory, blow up a mountain or an earthquake that puts us flat on the ground or speaking out of a loud voice out of thunder that you can hear from Mount Shasta to Wairika. But that's not God's response. It's something completely different. He says in verse 19, The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name. I don't know what Moses was expecting. Certainly not what I would have expected. I will make all my goodness pass before you. God's answer to Moses becomes an Old Testament creed, if you will, being repeated some 14 times throughout the Old Testament. It's not just a a one-time shot. This gets repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. God says, I'm going to hide your face in the rock, and then I'm going to pass by because you can't look at me. And I'm going to call out my name to you. And in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out Yahweh, the Lord. The very next words out of the Lord's mouth are, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations, and I forgive the iniquity and rebellion and sin. I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children and grandchildren. The entire family is afflicted, even children to the third and fourth generations. The first words out of his mouth are the God of compassion and mercy, not what you would expect from God revealing his glory, but that's what God calls his glory. He's slow to anger. God can put up with a lot. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's not going to cut and run or abandon you, even if you abandon him. He's there for you for the duration. And then there's a little contrast in the last part of verse 7. He says, I lavish steadfast love for a thousand. And your, your, your translation may say for thousands. Mine says for a thousand generations in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he actually spells out generations. But I think the comparison is is generations. For a thousand generations, I lavish love. I punish sin for the third and fourth generation. You see the contrast there? Thousands on one hand, third and fourth on the other. While the Old Testament tells us who God is, the New Testament brings us into sharper focus. 
The Old Testament is like black and white. The New Testament is like living color. But it's still the same picture. It just is a little bit clearer, a little bit more focus. What does abounding in steadfast love look like? How would you describe abounding in steadfast love? You all know. It's a Galilean carpenter. God defines his glory in terms of mercy and grace to Moses. In John tells us in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' glory is the same as the Father's glory. We have briefly talked about Jesus' heart in the past, but I'd like for us to dig a little deeper that we might gain a better understanding of why and how his love and compassion can put up with us wayward sinners. So, what is Jesus really like? There's only one place Jesus describes his heart. It's in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus describes his very own heart as gentle and humble. Remember we said at the beginning, the only way we can know God's heart is to listen to what God says about it. And this is what Jesus says, gentle and humble. Jesus picked a particular word for gentle. There were several words Jesus could have used for gentle. Most all of them mean gentle in your actions. The word Jesus used is only used three other times in the New Testament. Two in Matthew and one in 1 Peter. The two in Matthew are the meek will inherit the earth, meek being the same word, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Your king will come to you gentle and riding on a donkey in Matthew chapter 21. And in 1 Peter, First Peter uses that word for wives to have a gentle and quiet spirit so that they may win their husbands without a word. The word Jesus uses has the idea, carries with it not only the outward actions, but that it comes from within. It comes from a gentle spirit within. But there's a problem. The problem is our culture. Our culture does not think gentle is a positive attribute. Our culture equates meekness or gentleness with doormat. As I was doing some research, I even ran across a a thing, seven steps how to ditch meekness. There was, there was a, 
a bunch of suggestions on how you can become a non-meek person. The best we can come up with is gentle, explaining how this gentleness do not, does not have the connotations of weak will or doormat. The best way I can explain this is through an illustration. In the middle 1980s, our family took a vacation. We went back to the Midwest to see family. Mine, my family was in Nebraska. Pam's family was in South Dakota. So we went back and we visited family. Um, and on the way back, we stopped and visited a pastor friend in a little place called Faith, South Dakota. He pastored a little church out in the prairie. There wasn't even a town around the church, to be truth. But at any rate, we, we stopped and visited them and had a, had a good time. One of the activities that, we, that he had scheduled for us was a trail ride, a trail ride on horses. And he had a, he had a parishioner in his church who had a ranch, and he had horses, and we were going to go out to the ranch and go for take a day and go for a trail ride. I was okay with that, even though my idea of horsepower takes liquid fuel, not hay. But, but Pam was not okay with that. She had had some bad experiences with horses when she was younger. One of them left her on the ground, having been thrown from the horse. So she relayed her apprehension to the um, pastor friend, and he in turn related to the rancher and said, we kind of need a gentle horse for Pam. So um, he picked out a horse. We went on the trail ride. The horse was fantastic. I think the horse knew what Pam wanted to do before Pam did. Horse went everywhere it was supposed to, did everything right. We get back to the, to the ranch house. We go in, and across his mantle is a bunch of silver belt buckles that he had won in the rodeo. It seems for fun, his son and him participate in team roping. And they participated in the rodeos and were very successful. He, on one side of the mantle, he had a picture of a horse with him on it. The horse's ears were flattened out. It was doing zero to 60 in about a half a second. Dirt was flying. The thing was getting after the steer. It was amazing. Turns out that horse was the one he gave to Pam to ride. That gentle horse, that one that had the power and agility to get after the steer in just a few seconds. That's gentle. Jesus also <coughs> excuse me. Jesus also describes himself as humble. The word for humble is used often, but not what you might think. It's not used for humility as a virtue, but humility as a part of life, a humble existence, humble means, that kind of thing. That's why your translations may even say lowly there. What's the idea behind that? 
Jesus is accessible. You don't, you don't have a picture of a king extending forth the scepter so that you can come to Jesus. Jesus is lowly. He has an open-door policy. You can come anytime you want, and you are welcome here. How does Jesus respond to us? This is perhaps the last rock in our climb up the hill. So we get that clear view of what, what God's heart is really like. When you come to him to confess your sin or maybe ask for help with a messy life, what do you envision his posture is? A hesitation? Perhaps a scowl? Since he knows why you're there without you telling him. Keeping us perhaps at arm's length or looking at us over the rim of his glasses. While this is what we might expect, it's not what Jesus does. The problem is we lack the gentle and humble heart of Jesus. We don't understand how the grace of God works in conjunction with our sin. The more we sin, the more God's compassion, mercy, and grace are poured out to you. We tend to think of God extending mercy to us, but might it run out? Especially if we've been confessing the same sin again and again and again. Mercy is rooted in who God is. It will never ever run out. When we feel as if we've diminished God's grace by messing up, that very mess causes his grace to surge forward all the more. God's grace in the person of Jesus himself always abundantly matches the need for it. We sing songs about it. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What does that mean? For those who have come to him, who are in Christ, who have a covenantal relationship with him, when, that, when we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn to us. The best analogy is one from a Puritan preacher some 400 years ago with a little adaptation. If someone you love dearly gets cancer in, say, an arm, because of that disease, you're drawn to them perhaps more than you might be otherwise because they have cancer, because of the need. You love them, but hate the cancer that is destroying them. You don't hate them because they have cancer. In the same manner, Jesus loves us, but hates the sin. Christ is drawn to us, citing 
siding with us against our sin, not against us because of our sin. Jesus will never say to you, I can't believe you did that. What were you thinking? As a part of the treatment, some physical therapy may be necessary to restore the use of the arm. It's not done as punishment, but to restore the arm. In the same way, the disciplinary care of Christ is given to us because he loves us and he wants to help us by restoring us because of the effects of sin. Just like physical therapy, Christ's discipline is not punishment, but indeed intended to bring healing. You cannot sin your way out of Christ's heart. We have barely scratched the surface this morning, but we get to the place in the sermon where I answer the question, what does God want us to do in light of what we've just heard? It's simple, but it's not easy because it's not natural to us. We need to recognize and understand that when we bring our sins and our burdens to Christ, he's not keeping us at arm's length because of it, but instead giving you the biggest bear hug imaginable. We're hesitant to come to him. He runs to greet us. Leave your hesitation, reluctance, and your weariness behind. Pour out your heart to the one who loves you because of your, unlo- your unloveliness. The author to the book said it like this. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory is not the sin which we regularly commit, but our dark thoughts of God that we have because of our sin and the coolness towards him as a result. We need to recognize that God delights in helping us with our sin. He delights in forgiving our sins. We need to run to him instead of being wary. If this is you, take some time to ponder how you've been viewing God and his heart towards you. Has your wrongly perceived view of God's heart towards you kept you at arm's length from God? He has a forever open door policy and is just waiting for you to come in and unload all your baggage on him. His love for us is not contingent on our loveliness. We're at the top of the hill. And I hope you have a clear, unobstructed view of what God's heart is really like. He delights in forgiveness, abounds in steadfast love, and that's for you and for me. I'm going to close in prayer and pray that we might see God in view of what the scriptures tell us, an incomparable God who loves us because of our sin, not in spite of it. So would you bow with me as we close in prayer? 
Our great God, we thank you for what is not natural to us. We thank you for being a great, loving, compassionate, heavenly Father who delights in welcoming us, who delights in forgiving sin. Lord, we recognize that that we feel sometimes inadequate. Sometimes we feel like you're not willing to forgive us because it's the same sin we've committed several times before. Father, take those thoughts away from us. Lord, help us to be people who run to you, who desire you, who desire to get to know you even better because you're a great, compassionate father who loves his children. Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us and all the blessings you give us. We pray this all with the love of Jesus and in his name. Amen.